Hello and welcome to the Legal Edition. I'm your host, Attorney Mary Kay Loyan. Our show topic today, Siege at the Capitol and Homegrown Violent Extremism, Is It Here to Stay? Our guest is Dr. Michael Jensen. He is a senior researcher at the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism at the University of Maryland. He also leads the Profiles of Individual Radicalization in the United States Pierce Project, which is a first-of-its-kind database on the characteristics of U.S. radical extremists. Let's welcome Dr. Michael Jensen. Welcome, Dr. Jensen. Thank you for having me. Now, you lead the center's team on domestic radicalization, and you manage the data collection in the Global Terrorism Database. And it's used by the U.S. Department of Justice and other intelligence agencies around the world. With regards to domestic terror analysis and predictable events, did you see a January 6th type of event, siege at the Capitol, on the horizon? It's, it's, it's always difficult to predict uh, those types of mass mobilization moments, but we had been warning for several months that the conditions appeared to be lining up that would allow for something like that. So we had a large number of individuals that were, uh, that were showing up at demonstrations and at rallies that were participating in online extremist communities that were talking about mobilizing and getting together. And shortly after the election results, um, were, were certified or in favor of Joe Biden, they began talking about January 6th as a really important day and a day in which um, they would all have to get together to make their voices heard. So um, we weren't surprised that this happened, um, saddened for sure, but there were plenty of warning signs. And those warning signs, did they come from social media? And what exactly were those warning signs? There were a number. Social media is certainly a big one. So we, we saw participation in online extremist groups skyrocketing in the months um, leading up to the election and then certainly after the election. Um, but in addition to that, we, we saw more real world activity taking place in the last several years that was really concerning. So we saw hate crime activity in the United States um, was increasing. The number of domestic extremist events uh, tied to far-right groups like white supremacists and anti-government militias were starting to increase as well. Um, and we had a presidential administration um, that was in, in many ways providing the fuel for these movements. It was supportive of these movements in many ways. Um, and so the, the warning signs were, were not only what people were saying on social media, but it was behaviors that we were witnessing in, in, in the real world. What struck me is that you saw the warning signs but it appeared that the Capitol was so unprepared. Why was that? That's, that's a difficult question from, you know, from what I have, have heard, it sounds like they had a pretty much a top to bottom failure and bureaucracy got in the way in many cases. So there were warnings ahead of the, uh, the Capitol demonstration that a large number of people would be descending on Washington. And some of them were talking about engaging in violent activity. Um, the intelligence wasn't perfect on that, though, so some of the intelligence that was being delivered to Capitol Police was suggesting that these would probably be pretty uh, isolated events and, and there was only a small possibility that something could happen. Um, and so Capitol Police didn't, didn't respond perhaps as, as uh, strongly as they should have to those warning signs. Um, but the other thing is just that, you know, th this was a big bureaucratic machine in terms of moving people around and changing security plans. Uh, it takes a lot of individuals involved, and 
So, you know, calling up the National Guard or, or having more of a police presence was something that, that really took a lot of effort and was, it was difficult to mobilize ahead of the event. And then once it started, um, they ran into the same challenges when they made uh, calls for more National Guard to, to come to help quell uh, the crowd and the violence. It took hours for those, uh, for those requests to make their way up the chain of command and, and actually result in some help. Now, the FBI director, Christopher Wray, had warned us that white supremacist groups would be the, one of the biggest threats to our nation. Is that something you found in your research? Yeah, and FBI Director Ray is not the first um, uh, government official that has made that assessment. Actually, back in 2009, there was a report that came out of the Department of Homeland Security that warned that far-right extremist groups were, were starting to organize in much larger numbers and they were posing a threat. The report suggested things that, uh, you know, like former law enforcement, former military were particularly susceptible to recruitment by these organizations. The report was met with, uh, with a lot of criticism from Republican leadership. They, they really took uh, offense to the report, and, and so much so that the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security at the time, Janet Politano, actually apologized for the report and retracted it. But it was based on sound evidence. We, we saw these groups starting to form in more places, and in, individuals were uh, beginning to mobilize, and we saw a, an increase in the events related to these groups. So we saw FBI hate crime statistic numbers start to creep up in the aftermath of the uh, uh, after Obama's election. Um, you know, famously, we we saw at Charlottesville in, in, in 2017 a mass demonstration of these organizations. But there was plenty of of data to, to suggest that these these individuals, these groups, these movements were growing. Now, was it in the 1990s with the Timothy McVeigh bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building that recently the far-right white supremacist extremists regrouped? Uh, well, you know, far-right white supremacist organizations have really been around since the beginning of this country. And, and, and they've, you know, in the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan had membership around 3 million individuals. So there's always been an element of, of far-right white supremacist extremism in the history of this country. The Ku Klux Klan had a membership of around 3 million in the 1920s. But in the 1980s and the 1990s, we did see a resurgence of, of white supremacy in this country around the white power movement. There was a music scene that developed um, and individuals began uh, to organize in, in these, these separate groups. And we also saw a movement towards anti-government uh, uh, extremists as well. So Timothy McVeigh famously was an anti-government extremist. Um, responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing. So the 1990s were a pivotal period where these groups became quite active. Um, and there was a crackdown on them that uh, occurred, especially after the Oklahoma City bombing. And we, we saw some waning in their, in their influence. Um, but we really saw it, an it uptick again with the election of President Obama and certainly over the last few years. Now, where does your data come from? Is it something you mine on the internet? Where, where does it all come from? Yeah, so we're first tipped off uh, about a case usually when an arrest is made. So we'll get a news notification alert of some kind that an individual has been arrested and there's some suspicion of links to extremism or some extremist motivation behind the act. Um, at that point, we'll begin to investigate the background of the individual using whatever public sources we can find. So news reports, court records, police reports, anything that's available in, in open sources, 
uh, we'll begin to look into to try to investigate the background of the individual to verify that they were in fact affiliated with an extremist group or movement or that their, their crime was motivated by some extremist goal. Um, and then we begin to look in more closely at their background characteristics, so everything from um, their basic demographic information, where they live, how old they are, um, whether they're married or have children, whether they ever served in the military, but then looking at things that likely played a more uh, unique role in their radicalization process. So everything from early childhood experiences to their family dynamics, their education backgrounds, their work histories, looking at how they were exposed to extremist content, whether they were recruited into the movement by a family member or a friend, or they found it online. So we really try to understand everything that played a role in their radicalization trajectory. Now, from what I was reading, some of your the data that you've published, um, it used to be back in the Timothy McVeigh day, it took 18 months to radicalize uh, an individual, but today it's seven months. I assume that is because of social media and the way that uh, information uh, uh, can transfer between two individuals these days. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's what we believe is that the main effect of much of extremism moving into the online world is that it speeds up the radicalization and the mobilization processes. If you were an individual that were involved in a white supremacist movement in the 1980s or in the 1990s, the way you got involved was you knew someone that was involved in the movement. You had a cousin or a friend that got involved and they recruited you in and and they exposed you to the ideology and you, you went through the initiation uh, to join a, a real world face-to-face -face organization. But all that really began to change um, later in the 1990s and especially in, in the early part of the 2000s as these groups started to exploit technology uh, to spread their message. So individuals were able to come together online to share ideas, um, to radicalize each other, to mobilize uh, each other. And what happens in an online environment is it tends to be hyper-radicalizing and hyper-mobilizing. These are environments that are active 24 hours a day that individuals immerse themselves in. Um, and the way these social media platforms are set up is that they're set up to keep people online as long as possible and engaged on their platform as long as possible. So if you express even a little bit of interest in a topic, the platform is going to uh, offer you more of that content. And so what happens is individuals kind of slip down the rabbit hole and they end up in these echo chambers where all they're hearing are these extremist ideas and in hearing people encouraging them to do something on behalf of the beliefs. And it, and it, and it really has a, this effect of radicalizing individuals quite quickly. And the algorithms give them basically the same type of propaganda that they're actually looking at so that they don't get a chance to hear the other side of the coin or you know what might be truth versus fact or uh, fiction yeah so exactly. so it yeah. kind of perpetuates itself it per it, self perpetuates exactly so you know the the algorithms are trained to keep you on the platform as long as possible and the way that that you you will stay on the platform is if you're seeing what you like and so once you expressed an interest in something, then you will get offered more of that content to keep you engaged. So if you express an interest in the QAnon conspiracy theory, you will get recommendations to view more content about QAnon and from QAnon uh, followers until you, you fall deeper and deeper into it and you eventually don't hear any other viewpoints other than the extremist narrative that you kind of self-selected yourself um, into. The social media companies, I will say, have really worked hard over the last couple of years to try to improve that process. So they are refining their algorithms all the time um, to try to make sure that they're not amplifying the problem. 
the issue is, is that they're always playing catch up to some extent. These extremist groups are, are really adaptable. They're quite flexible. They know how to take advantage of the platforms. So by the time the, the companies catch on to the fact that they're exploiting their platform in some new way, they've already got thousands, if not tens of thousands members um, um, involved in, in, in their communities. Um, and so then it gets shut down and they, just, they switch their tactics again. And it's just this constant kind of game of whack-a-mole. Mm-hmm. What I want to do is I want to delve into the psyche of some of these, these people, you know, what motivates them. Uh, you have written about different narratives that, you know, some people have the grievance narrative, some people have what they call the, I guess, the far right narrative. Can you explain what the difference is between the two, if there is a difference? Sure. Well, the, the one thing to understand about radicalization is that it's incredibly complex and there really isn't a single profile of an individual who radicalizes or a single way in which people radicalize. Um, people start at different places in their lives and end up at the same at the same point of, you know, of engaging in, in extremism. So, for example, you have some individuals where you can identify a trigger moment in their lives. Um, where they became vulnerable to the narrative and to recruitment. This could be a traumatic experience in, the, in their life, the loss of a loved one, a parent or a sibling um, at a young age. It could be experiences with, with physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. Um, and they're looking for solutions to those problems. They're looking for camaraderie because of that trauma that they've experienced. And they find it in a recruitment narrative from an extremist organization, and that starts their pathway in. Others have very explicit grievances. Um, they feel like they've been wronged in some way. So, um, you know, they feel like they haven't been able to meet all of their own expectations in terms of their careers and their families. And it's not because of their own decisions or their own behaviors. It's because there's a conspiracy against them. That's um, what they believe. Really that's what they believe, right? That there's this there's these individuals that have unified and are working to thwart their attempts to achieve their goals. Um, what becomes really dangerous in a radicalization process is when an individual begins to tie their own personal grievances to perceived grievances of a community that they feel they belong to. So it's not just that I am being victimized here, it's that I'm a part of this broader community and we're collectively being held back. And it's my responsibility to fight on behalf of my community. Um, to improve our situation. Isn't that a way, though, of not taking self-responsibility? Is it... It's, it, it, it tends to be a natural human tendency that when things aren't working out for you the way you want them to, you look to place blame elsewhere. Um, so most people aren't very good at critical introspection where they question their own decision-making and their own behaviors. It's much more appealing psychologically to believe that it's not your fault, um, that there was really nothing you could do about it because you were the victim of some larger conspiracy against you. And that's where this whole narrative plays in about the election fraud, um, someone being gypped, someone being, um, you know, treated poorly. And that was the, the paradigm that uh, former President Trump had um, elicited, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, the, the former administration was quite good at tying a number of grievances together with the same kind of common enemy group. So whether it was grievances over uh, liberal immigration policies or healthcare policy or public safety measures, 
it was always that um, there's this group of liberals that are working to undermine the traditional American way of life, and especially the way of life for white uh, male Americans. So white nationalist organizations, alt-right groups took, uh, took this narrative and ran with it. And so in their, um, in their view, uh, white men have been absolutely fundamental to the development of the modern world. They should be praised and celebrated for that, but there's this conspiracy against them. Um, there's these kind of politically correct warriors and liberal elites that have banded together to try to, um, to, try, to try to thwart their attempts to, to maintain status within uh, their communities and maintain importance. And so they're unifying behind this collective identity of victimization um, that we are all uh, being victimized and that we all need to work together to reverse that. Historically, has this type of victimization really taken place um, prior to this uh this escalation we're seeing now? Certainly, there have been community groups in, in this country and elsewhere that have been victimized. They're just not the ones right now that are claiming victimization. So if you look at minority and disadvantaged communities in this country, absolutely, they've been collectively victimized. And civil rights movement was a response to that type of collective victimization. What we're seeing right now with the political justice movement and the criminal justice movement in this country is another reflection of real world collective victimization. The problem is that in these individuals' eyes, um, they're not all that interested in, in what you and I might be, uh, consider facts or evidence. They have their own facts and their own evidence, and, and they feel like they've been just as victimized as everyone else. Now, this QAnon movement, do you know where did that come from, or you know how or why did it appeal to certain of these individuals? Yeah. So Q, QAnon developed out of a, a precursor conspiracy theory called Pizzagate. And the argument uh, that individuals were making was that there was a group of liberal politi politicians that were protected by the deep state and, and, and were linked up with Hollywood celebrities that were involved in a child sex trafficking ring. And it was a very bizarre conspiracy theory. They believed that the sex trafficking ring was being run out of a pizza parlor in Washington, DC. Um, it actually inspired an individual to show up at the, at the uh, pizza parlor and open fire inside of it. Um, QAnon took that narrative and developed it further. So a post uh, occurred on uh, 4chan uh, board in 2017 under a um, thread called uh, the, the Calm Before the Storm, which was a reference to something that Donald Trump had said um, in a photo op. Um, and an individual posted uh, saying that they were a high-ranking um, intelligence official that had uh, inside knowledge of this deep state cabal of, of child sex traffickers and knew firsthand that Donald Trump was handpicked to fight this, uh, this, this illegal enterprise. Um, and that the military was working with him to help undermine that, and that we would s soon see what they called the storm, which was going to be the mass arrest of Democrats and other liberals who were involved in this criminal enterprise. It, it remained a fringe conspiracy theory on, on 4chan and in smaller platforms like that for a while, but what we've really seen over the last year is that it's taken off um, in this country, and, and what happened was it moved on to more mainstream platforms, and the platforms weren't ready for it. They, they weren't looking out for it. They really didn't have any policies in place to, to moderate the content, um, so they moved on to Facebook, and before you knew it, there was somewhere around 9,000 Facebook groups dedicated to QAnon that had 
3 million members. Um, Twitter had hundreds of thousands of QAnon accounts. YouTube had QAnon influencers posting videos and they had hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And so it, it really ballooned quite quickly. And it was aided and embedded by the pandemic and the fact that so many people were isolated at home, spending a lot of time online, and they were finding this conspiracy theory quite easily on these mainstream platforms. Um, the fact that they were, was it the fact that they were on mainstream platforms actually lend itself to the, their legitimacy? It, perhaps some people viewed it that way, but what I think is the main effect is, is that it was just able to reach hundreds of millions of people within one click, right? So it was just a click away. Um, you know, these smaller platforms like 4chan's and at the time 8chan, now 8kun, and, and the ones that are currently running like Telegram and Parler, um, they have hundreds of thousands of millions of members, but Facebook and Twitter and YouTube have hundreds of millions um, of users around the world. And so it's, it's a huge audience you can tap into. And the other thing that was helping the conspiracy theory was that the administration at the, at the time was not, um, was not trying to separate themselves at all from the conspiracy. So they weren't denouncing it. Um, and, and in some ways they were promoting it. So Donald Trump famously retweeted QAnon posts over 200 times um, during his presidency when he was asked um, what he thought about QAnon um, he, he basically said that he thought they were, they were fine people that, that clearly loved him um, a lot. And so, you know, there was no public pronunciation from the top um, from the conspiracy theory, and that gave it some validity um, for some individuals that it appeared like the president, who is the hero of this story, um, was, was giving some legitimacy to the, to the narrative. And so I think that that helped um, um, people latch onto it. What is per I find perplexing is that th their claims are so outrageous. I mean, verifiably outrageous. When that uh, when that person stormed that pizza parlor to find the basement, he found there was no basement. There was no children. When are they going to learn? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. I think some of them have. I think that the election was the final straw for some individuals. We've seen some individuals very publicly come out and talk about how they are leaving the movement because its predictions have failed one after the other. Others are really deeply committed to the idea. And so every time one of these predictions fails, whether it's child sex trafficking or the election, um, really anything, um, that they've predicted, they reinvent the narrative to explain away why something didn't happen. But for the, the diehards, um, you know, they, they really enjoy this community and, and they get a lot of self-fulfillment out of this community. And so they will look for ways to reinvent the narrative to explain away that failed prediction. Um, so I definitely think that um, since uh, the election, especially since January 6th, that movement has struggled a, a little bit. I think people have questioned it more. People have walked away. It's also harder for QAnon uh, followers to have a voice. The, the big platforms have really cracked down on their presence. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube have shut down uh, millions of accounts related to QAnon. And so now they don't have as widespread of a reach. But there are some individuals that are just deeply dedicated to, to this conspiracy theory um, and, and are going to stick with it. And some of them are, are fairly powerful individuals that have money. So there's now a, a QAnon political action committee that's, that's going to put um, you know, money behind political campaigns and, and things of that nature. So um, I think it's a movement that's struggling right now, but it's not going anywhere.
I, are other nations struggling with some of these same issues that you see, you know, this internal strife on this type of crazy, um, like the QAnon basis? Are they going through some of the sim similar? Yeah, a number of countries have, have similarly seen an increase in QAnon-related activities. So you've seen individuals demonstrating in the United Kingdom and in Japan and in Australia um, on behalf of, of QAnon. It's not clear that it has reached as far into those populations as it has the United States, but it has now become a global conspiracy theory uh, with dozens of, of uh, countries um, having parts of their population that are now following the movement. That's frightening. That is frightening. It is frightening. And I think the, the hard question is, what do you do about it, right? How do you reverse that trend? Um, and that's one that I don't think we have a good answer for at, at this point. Um, usually you would talk about a public education campaign that, you know, you would present facts and evidence to dispel these myths and you would, um, you know, you would roll that out and it would be a counter narrative program. Um, but these are individuals that are deeply distrustful of science, of the news media, of politicians, um, and, and, and they are likely to listen to facts and evidence that are disconfirming of their theories. So what do you say to these individuals when they don't trust the voices that are supposed to be trusted. Um, and so I don't know that we have a great answer right now for how to engage in this kind of mass de-radicalization of individuals that have latched onto this conspiracy. Um, and we know families are struggling as well to, to get people back. So uh, an alternative answer might be, well, let's support families that are trying to get their loved ones out of this movement. But we know that they too don't know. Uh, how to do that, that they have family members that they describe as being so far gone, they don't even recognize them um, anymore, and, and they don't know what to do. So that's, to me, that's the really scary part about it, is not uh, how far it's it's expanded and how far its reach has gone, is that we don't have a plan at all for, for how to reverse the tide. It seems that they're taking a playbook from cult leaders, you know, cult leaders who used to indoctrinate, you know, there's been several famous ones, especially, you know, the Jim Jones one. They literally, you know, they drank the Kool-Aid. Um, these people are consuming all this misinformation, disinformation and, and fantasy. Um, do you, you think it's more of a mental health issue? Do you think people are, um, because of this pandemic, they're just looking for more um, uh, escape from reality? I, what do you think? I mean, are these people, are they, you know, what's their backgrounds? Most of them from your data, what do you see? Yeah, so, you know, we, we've collected data on, on all QAnon-inspired uh, individuals in the United States that have been arrested for committing crimes on, on behalf of the conspiracy theory. And what we have found is, is some alarmingly high rates of things like mental health conditions and previous trauma. So we found that about 45% of uh, the population of offenders had some diagnosable mental health condition that existed prior to their involvement in QAnon. So this wasn't just simply the case that they believe in QAnon, so they, they must have a mental health problem. No, these were individuals that, that family members and loved ones knew were struggling before they, they were exposed to QAnon beliefs. So everything from bipolar disorder to paranoid schizophrenia to individuals that had post-traumatic stress from military service. So, you know, about 45%, that's a really, really high percentage in comparison to national averages of mental health problems. 
We also saw really high um, percentages of previous trauma, so experiences that happened before their radicalization that seemed to be um, triggering for some individuals. So for example, there were, um, in our data, we, there were six women who were arrested for committing QAnon-inspired crimes prior to the Capitol insurrection, and five of those women um, were radicalized after experiencing trauma related to the physical or sexual abuse of their own children um, by family members or loved ones. And so they seem to have been drawn to the QAnon conspiracy theory um, out of the narrative that's pushed by the conspiracy uh, theory that the followers are, are playing this really pivotal role in fighting uh, the exploitation of children and child sex trafficking. Um, it was something that was deeply personal to them because of their own experiences with their children. Um, and so the, the message really resonated with them. So, you know, mental health trauma, definitely uh, we're seeing it in the backgrounds um, of these individuals. Others, you know, we saw, you know, about a third of, of, of the population of offenders had previous criminal histories prior to radicalizing. So these are individuals that were committing both violent and nonviolent crimes um, before they found QAnon and they continue to do so after they found QAnon. So the backgrounds did vary to some extent, but there were some troubling characteristics. Now, what about the, uh, the quote unquote white nationalists, the uh, Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, uh, you know, what do they have invested in this? They're actually, I think, aligning with some of these QAnon conspiracies because they were all at the Capitol. Yeah. Yeah, so we, we've seen um, unification on the far right over the last several years. Um, it's mostly been a form of rhetorical collaboration where they're, they're speaking with each other online. They're adopting the language of each other's groups and some of the symbols of the groups. And then they show up at, at, at demonstrations and, um, and, and they're there together. So January 6th was an instance where we saw all of these groups showing up and they were all represented uh, during the demonstration, but the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville was another instance of, of these various groups coming together in the form of a public demonstration. Um, we have not yet seen uh, so much cross-movement collaboration in terms of specific plots or criminal activities in the United States, but that would be a really dangerous development if the Proud Boys start to work with the Oath Keepers or with QAnon people to plot attacks in the United States. We haven't seen any evidence of that at that point, but that would be a, a really concerning turn. But they are collaborating with some of these events, like at the Capitol and such as yeah. that so, and others. Yeah, we saw in the lead up to the, the Capitol, again, another reason why no one should have been surprised, especially law enforcement intelligence, that it was coming is that they were very openly talking about uh, mobilizing and collaborating together on January 6th. They were so it was an about, open secret. It was an open secret. I mean, it, they were on Twitter talking about which hotels um, to rent or, or how, you know, what were the best ways to get to DC? Should they bring weapons? Should they not bring weapons? Um, where's everybody meeting up on the morning? What's the plan? Um, they weren't trying to hide this at all. They were, they were communicating in, in open dialogue on, on major platforms talking about January 6th. Now, we know how dangerous this is from his historical perspectives. You know, we saw that what happened in Oklahoma City where, where, where is this going to go? I mean, can we ever get back once the pandemic, I'm hoping once the pandemic goes open, things will change, but yeah. can, is this our new normal? Or are we going to ever get back to what we used to consider normal? Yeah, so I, I, I don't think it is um, a, a new normal. I look at January 6th as a bit of an outlier event. There was really a 
perfect storm of conditions that had come together to allow for that event. We had political leadership that was mobilizing individuals um, uh, to collaborate and to descend on Washington, D.C. on a given day and, and to, to show force. Um, we had uh, individuals that had exploited technolo technolo technology and social media platforms to collaborate in that moment. Um, and we had individuals that were just really vulnerable to these narratives because of the pandemic and because of, of an election that was really divisive um, and polarizing in this country. And those conditions have now faded to some extent, right? So the, the tech companies have really cracked down on these groups and the in these movements. They're finding it harder and harder uh, to organize on those platforms. And they're moving to the smaller ones like Telegram and Gab and things of that nature where they don't have as much reach and as uh, much influence. Uh, they've lost political leadership in the White House that was somewhat supportive of, of them and their movements. Um, so I, I think the conditions that allowed for January 6th were pretty unique and, and we're, we're starting to kind of reverse back to what, you know, I would call regression to the mean. And the mean was always a, a present and significant threat, but one that was fairly manageable, right? It was one where we had a small group of individuals that were radicalizing, that were participating in these online communities that were actually willing to mobilize on behalf of them to do something to do something criminal or dangerous. Um, and, and that's kind of the norm in, in, in this field is extremism has what we call a low base rate of offending is the, the average person that adopts an extremist ideology won't actually act on behalf of it. It's a fringe, uh, tiny portion of those individuals that will. So what will happen in the future, in, in my opinion, is you will absolutely see another mass casualty event in this country where um, we investigate the background of the individual and find out that they were active on, on, these, on these forums and these social media platforms. There will be more plots that will be uncovered and people will be arrested for planning things. Um, but a mass mobilization moment like we saw on January 6th, I think is unlikely. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I do hope so. Uh, but now getting back to, you know, the president has obviously the ear of the nation and he has the bully pulpit. Do you, do you feel that that in and of itself can radicalize these people? Or do you think it's that combined with other triggers that really uh, makes, makes them move? I think it's one piece of the puzzle. I don't think it's the only piece. It's a really powerful one, though. I mean, this is an individual that has a, a tremendous amount of influence um, uh, over the population. And so when, when they adopt an extremist viewpoint or, or leanings that way, or they push false narratives around election fraud or things of that nature, it's going to resonate with, with a large uh, number of individuals. But when we're talking about mobilizing people then, actually getting them to take to the streets and, and to do something criminal or violent, that's when we have to look at the backgrounds of those individuals and, and figure out who's vulnerable to that type of narrative. Because we know that you know, most people that believe that the, Republic, that the election was stolen from Donald Trump didn't show up at the Capitol on January 6th and didn't engage in violence. It was some segment of that population that did. And so the question becomes, why was it those people? It's, it's bewildering why such a lie would even have legs. You know, why would such a lie that the election was stolen even have such movement when 60 plus courts ruled against it, where everyone else in the intelligence community said there was no fraud? widespread. I don't understand what is so lacking in the psyche of these folks 
that they're willing to grasp at something. I mean, Donald Trump, he, he was not their savior. They, for some reason, they thought he was. Yeah. Um, well, you I know, part, don't understand. Part of it is a product of, uh, you know, four years of an administration um, that kept pushing the narrative of fake news, that you can't trust the voices that we've all come to, to trust and rely on. You can't trust the news media. Um, you can't trust scientists. You can't trust academics. Um, they're all against you and they're all against us. And everything they say is just a witch hunt. Um, it's just a way of, of, of getting us and keeping us down. Um, and that over four years of hearing that over and over and over again really sank in with some, some people. So they don't care that the courts are ruling over and over that there was no election fraud. They don't care that the FBI has come out and said that they can't find any evidence of wrongdoing around the election because they've been told for the last four, four and a half years not to trust those individuals. Donald Trump, before he became president, had a history of not paying contractors, had a history of not being truth, trustworthy, had lied on a number of things, but these people still believed him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's something I don't understand, but, but there were plenty of people that were w willing to look uh, past his past and personal failings um, because he represented something that was really appealing to them, right? He was taking the fight to Washington on behalf of them, um, at least in their view. That's in what, their view, right, right. Uh, and so they were they were willing to look past an awful lot of bad things in his past and a lot of, um, you know, just in terms of his just personality that are not terribly appealing because of the fight that he was, that he was leading on their behalf. Uh, just before we close, I just wanted to touch on um, the left. Some will say um, the left, it's always, uh, you know, they don't get the uh, attention that they should, that, you know, when they uh, were ruining <laughs> property out on the uh, West Coast in Oregon, um, they weren't getting the attention, you know, the federal courthouses. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, I, I say to that that, you know, we, we do know that there have been individuals on the left that have engaged in, in criminal acts on behalf of their ideology. So in the 1970s, um, there was fairly large political movements like the Weather Underground in the United States that were involved in acts of terrorism on behalf of social justice goals. And um, in the 1980s and 90s, we saw environmental groups and animal rights organizations that engaged in criminal behavior, uh, pushing um, an agenda. But what our data shows and really what all data show is that they just don't compare to the size of the movement on the far right. So, you know, we find, um, you know, there's on average about 60 terrorist attacks that occur in the United States every year, and the vast majority of them um, are committed by somebody with some type of far right extremist leaning, whether that be white supremacy or anti-government uh, sovereign citizens, militia members, things of that nature. Um, and we have maybe a few individuals on the left that do something um, similar. And so the numbers just don't support the narrative that they're equal um, in terms of their size and in terms of their level of funding. And, and, and that's really just true of not just the data we've collected, but really the data everyone has collected. Anything else you'd like to add um, before we close? So, you know, I, I think that, you know, the next uh, year or so is going to be really interesting with the Biden administration. They have a number of challenges ahead of them. 
Um, they have to reverse some of things that the past administration did. So the past administration really restricted funding um, for research in this field, restricted um, what law enforcement was doing in this area. And, and so there's, there's a lot of uh, work that has to be done to restore some of the initiatives that were in place before the Trump administration that were, that were showing promise. Um, another thing is that they're going to have to tackle um, some really difficult legal questions about what they can do in this area as they shift their focus from international terrorism to domestic terrorism. A lot of the tools that are used um, by intelligence, by law enforcement, by prosecutors to, um, to, to counter international terrorism cannot be used in a domestic setting. And so we're, we're gonna have lots of questions over the, the coming months and years about how we disrupt uh, financing of domestic terrorism. Um, are there new charges that we should be bringing against individuals that engage um, in, in these events? And there's just not a lot of, of power right now that law enforcement agencies and prosecutors have um, to deal with these cases. So I think that's gonna be a big topic of discussion in the, in the coming months. I agree. They're going to be working on a domestic terrorism statute as well. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here. Uh, this has been quite enjoyable and informative. And thank you for the work that you do. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Jensen, for sharing his research and opinions on domestic terrorism and radicalization in the U.S. I also want to thank you, our viewers, for tuning in. For more information on today's topic and our guest, visit us online at thelegaledition.com. And remember, this information is for general educational purposes. It is not legal or professional advice. And now you can download our podcasts and subscribe online. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter.